Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. <laughs> the good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Relax while we lovingly imbibe your brain in a sweet, sweet waft of science. I'm Victoria Bond. On this edition, we will feature bird homos, belly buttons in sports, and the Hudson Canyon. But first up, here's the news with Mark West and Ian Wolfe. Scientists have found the reason why Africans dominate on the running track and Europeans in the swimming pool. It's in their belly buttons. What matters is where the navel is in relation to the rest of the body, says the study published in the International Journal of Design and Nature and Ecodynamics. That's because the navel is the centre of gravity of the body. It so happens that in the architecture of the human body of West African origin runners, the centre of gravity is significantly higher than in runners of European origin, which puts them at an advantage in sprints on the track, said Duke University professor Andre Bajan. Individuals of West African origin have longer legs than European origin athletes, which means their belly butts are three centimetres higher than Europeans. This means that African athletes have a hidden height that is 3% greater than the Europeans, which gives them a significant speed advantage on the track. Locomotion is essentially a continual process of falling forward, and mass that falls from a higher altitude falls faster, Bejan explained. In the pool, meanwhile, Europeans have the advantage because they have longer torsos, making their belly buttons lower in the general scheme of body architecture. The swimmer who makes the bigger wave is the faster swimmer, and a longer torso makes a bigger wave. A new study published this week may mark the end of the theory that homosexuality only has evolutionary disadvantages, according to Nature. The findings, based on observations of 93 bird species that are known to engage in homosexual activity, revealed that the amount of time males or females put towards parental care was inversely proportional to how often they engage in homosexual behavior. This means that homosexuality may not be costly for birds that have plenty of mating opportunities because of lower parenting demands. In other words, since some animals can devote more energy towards mating behavior than raising their offspring, there is wiggle room for homosexuality to become a common behavior without sacrificing evolutionary efficiency. The fact that homosexuality has evolved is difficult to deny. More than 130 species of birds participate in homosexual activity. The research team reached its conclusion by scoring each bird species based on the relative contribution of males and females to parental chores. They found that male homosexuality is more prevalent among bird species in which the female is more heavily devoted to parenting tasks. Similarly, when females have more free time, female homosexuality was more frequently witnessed. Overall, the research discovered that 38% of the species studied displayed female-female sexual behavior and 82% participate in male-male behavior. In total, 5% of all sexual encounters among all of the species were homosexual. Although the study dispels that the theory of homosexuality is evolutionary disadvantage or unnatural, it cannot determine what the ultimate explanation for homosexuality is. So where does the research go from here? The next logical step is to see if similar patterns occur across other vertebrate species. No phone reception? 
No problem. The Serval project, based at Flinders University in Melbourne, allows mobile phones to talk without connecting to the phone company. The Serval project, named after an African wildcat, has a temporary, self-organising, self-powered mobile network for disaster areas, achieved by using small phone towers dropped into the disaster area by air. The permanent side of the Serval project is designed for remote areas. It creates a mesh-based phone network between mobile phones that have Wi-Fi internet capabilities, so they can talk to each other through a mesh of all the other mobile phones in range. Eventually, they plan to add specially designed mobile phones that operate on unlicensed frequencies to reach greater distances than Wi-Fi alone can reach. Dr Paul Gardner-Stevens claims that using the Serval Project meshing technology, millions of people who currently lack telephone access because they have no network infrastructure, no signal, will be able to use phones every day, as well as being able to help those affected by disaster. Spice for the eyes. Just 20 milligrams per day of the yellow spice saffron may restore sight to people suffering age-related macular degeneration. Professor Sylvia Bisti of the Australian Centre of Excellence in Vision Science has conducted clinical trials in Rome on patients with age-related macular degeneration taking saffron as a dietary supplement. She discovered that the yellow spice made from crocus flowers not only protects light-sensing cells in the eye from damage, but also slows and reverses age-related macular degeneration, also known as dry macular degeneration. Not only is saffron an antioxidant, but it appears to help the eye regulate the fatty acids in light-sensitive cells. This helps them defend against damage. In animal models, she's shown that the saffron diet protects against sun damage to the eyes, something she warns that we all can suffer from. Professor Bisti has also found that saffron is active in retinosis pigmentosa, a genetic illness that can cause blindness in young people. Research in feeding the yellow spice to animals raises hopes that saffron may also be able to slow retinosis pigmentosa. Get out those saffron recipe books before the price goes up. Next up, here's Lachlan Watmore rhapsodizing about the Hudson Canyon. New York, New York is a town with everything if you believe the hype and certainly worth visiting, even if you don't. It's got lots and lots of streets laid out in a group of skyscrapers on those streets, fantastic museums and galleries, a thriving music scene, the cheesiest, greasiest and therefore best pizza in the world, the elegance of Chelsea, the throb of Harlem, the historic charm of the Lower East Side and a bloody great undersea canyon just outside the harbour. The Hudson Canyon, according to the New York Times, who should know, is almost the size of the Grand Canyon, just underwater. It starts about 160 kilometres from the mouth of the Hudson River, which is also the entrance to New York Harbour, and cuts a deep ravine through the continental shelf of the eastern US coast. Starting as a small channel about 20 to 40 metres deep just south of Ambrose Light, by the time you followed it down to the abyssal plain at the bottom of the continental shelf, it's grown to 12 kilometres wide and over 2 kilometres deep. 
Like many coastal geological features, the Hudson Canyon is very young, only 10,000 years old. Back then, the sea level was lower, and the coast, which included the mouth of the Hudson, was much further out than it is now. Sure enough, undersea mapping of the preliminary part of the canyon produces a picture that looks just like a terrestrial river, a large central stream with tributaries coming in here and there. The canyon is very much active. Depending on conditions, currents can move either up or down it, and upwelling currents have made local waters a favourite with fishermen. Tuna, swordfish, red crabs and other delicious marine treats are readily available, but the channel's biggest asset may not yet be tapped. The very first time I spoke on this show, way back during the reign of Ramses III, get that grin off your face, West, before I wipe it off, the subject was deep-sea chemo-autotrophy, which is the ability of certain abyssal communities to thrive in the absence of sunlight, instead using chemical energy for primary production. Below 200 metres depth, sunlight is in very poor supply, so these communities form symbioses with specialised bacteria who extract energy from highly reduced chemicals in the water. These bacteria live in the tissues of a whole suite of deep-sea critters and make many more nutrients than they need, so in exchange for somewhere to live, they give their excess nutrients to their hosts and thus the community can grow. The dissolved chemicals that they oxidise include different sulphides and methane. Back in 2007, a research team from Rutgers University, led by Dr Peter A. Rona in partnership with the US National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, made three trips to the canyon and found high concentrations of dissolved methane in the water column. Their free-swimming, deep-sea diving, floor-mapping and photographing robot also discovered large pits on the sea floor, possibly formed by the shrinking of methane ice and its impact on the sediment. Next month, Dr Rona and his team will return with an even more whiz-bang robot in search of the chemoautotrophic community that has so far eluded them. So we at Diffusion would like to wish them a fair wind and good hunting. Oh, and don't forget the pizza. You're listening to Diffusion Science Radio. Diffusion at 2scr.com. Brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network. Start spreading the news I am leaving today I want to be a part of it New York, New York These vagabond shoes They are longing to stray Right through the very heart of it New York, New York I want to wake up in that city that doesn't sleep Next up, I spoke to Robert Boyd about herd immunity and vaccines. Recently, the Australian Vaccination Network was given 14 days to place a prominent wording on its website stating that it should not be read as medical advice. This warning was issued following an investigation that concluded that the group promoted inaccurate and misleading information to parents via its website. The Healthcare Complaints Commission moved to investigate the website following complaints, including from a New South Wales couple whose four-week-old daughter died from whooping cough. My name's uh, Professor Robert Boy. I'm a paediatrician and I'm head of clinical research at the National Centre for Immunisation Research and Surveillance, and that's part of the University of Sydney. So you've done a bit of research on um, the effectiveness of vaccines and, and their role in the larger community. Can you tell us a little bit more about them? 
Well, vaccines are really the safest and the best way to protect young children, in fact the entire community, against uh, serious uh, infectious diseases that can be deadly. I've been involved in vaccine research for more than 20 years uh, and seen the devastating effects as a paediatrician of diseases like uh, Hib and meningococcal meningitis and blood poisoning, the damage that varicella can do, that Hupikov can do, the deaths uh, that can result from a whole series of infections that until the last uh, 20, 30 years uh, were not preventable. And now that these diseases can be prevented, it's, it's just a tragedy to see a child brought in with a vaccine-preventable disease which is either going to kill them or uh, to damage them severely. Um, so uh, one of my key objectives is to raise awareness of immunisation, the safety, the fact that nothing's uh, foolproof, that vaccinations are largely very effective. Uh, we have to look out for, for side effects, but we know that in general vaccines are very well tolerated. So some people would argue that, that these diseases, I mean, some of them, the ones that you're talking about, chickenpox, it's just a couple of poxes. It's not that dangerous, especially compared to some of the side effects that um, certain people are claiming vaccines cause. What would be your response to that? Well, there are a number of what we call diseases of childhood, including chickenpox, measles, mumps, uh, rubella, which I uh, freely admit for most children is relatively mild. But we do not have a test we do not have a way of predicting which child will get this viral infection, be it chickenpox or measles, very severely and so bad that they're in hospital or may even die. If we knew, then we would only vaccinate the ones at high risk. But because we don't know, because there's no test, because there's no way of examining and predicting this, we have to have universal vaccination. And it was the introduction of universal vaccination which has literally saved hundreds of lives in Australia, um, uh, from the, the devastating effects in the small minority of children who can get measles or chickenpox. Let me give you a single example of a father I've only uh, spoken to in the last week. He lost his eight-year-old child from one of the rare complications of chickenpox. There were scores of deaths in previous decades, uh, the 80s and the 90s, from chickenpox before vaccines started to become available on the private market 10 years ago, and then uh, about four years ago, um, more widely available because it was funded uh, by the government. So these diseases are in the main uh, mild, but if you're one of that minority who get it badly, then you're so glad that you've been vaccinated. And these are diseases that can be better prevented the more there are vaccinated. So because chickenpox itself and measles are highly transmissible, one person can easily infect 10 others because they're so transmissible we need to have at least 90% of the population immunised and immune to create a herd immunity, a, a barrier, a chain of protection around vulnerable young children so that even if they're not vaccinated, they can be protected by so many other people uh, being vaccinated. And so, uh, for me, it's really important not only that individuals think about their personal protection, but families think about uh, the wider protection within their family and communities think about how they can prevent the vulnerable members from being uh, badly affected by a disease that's easily preventable and safely preventable by vaccination. Professor Boyd, thank you very much. You're welcome. With regard to our segment about women in science last week, I'm interviewing Aileen Wu, who worked on research regarding gender equity at the School of Physics at the University of New South Wales. 
The results were published in 2007 in a report entitled Maximizing Potential in Physics. Now, Aileen, can you tell me a little bit about the results of your study? Sure. Um, the results were really quite interesting. Um, I guess, first of all, I should contextualize it by saying why uh, they decided that the study would be important, they being the people, the academics in the School of Physics. Um, the reason why they wanted to do this study is because they were finding that the women academics within the school weren't actually progressing career-wise. 20% um, of the academics in the school are women. And um, over a number of years, they hadn't actually progressed up the academic ladder and their male counterparts had been. So there was a big question as to exactly why this was occurring. Right. So, so they were stuck as associate professors or things like that? Oh, not even, not even. You know, there were there are um, four levels of academics in the School of Physics, from senior, uh, from lecturer to senior lecturer, associate professor to professor, and um, ninety percent of the women were in lecturer and senior lecturer levels, and eighty percent of the men were in associate professor and professor levels. So there was a huge imbalance in terms of, you know. Who was um, who was at the top and who wasn't? Yeah. So, so what was going on? Why did that happen? Yeah, it's an interesting question. Some people thought that it was not really an issue to research because they thought that's just the way it was, um, which is interesting because I think it's they sort of assumed that you know maybe there was just something about the women in the schools that. <laughs> you know, that, you know, meant that they weren't really progressing. So that it wasn't an um, external thing, but rather an internal cause. Uh, who knows? I think that people are reluctant to start saying that it's um, gender due to people being female because that starts getting a little bit dangerous and people don't like making those kinds of statements um, explicit. But the fact that they didn't think it was a problem kind of implies that they thought maybe it was just a you know, maybe it's just something about the women. It was really important that in doing this research, we looked at um, concrete data and collect um, empirical evidence to, in our search to sort of find out what was going on. Yeah, so can so you tell me a little bit about what, what you actually found? Like what was going on to cause sure. this imbalance? Yeah, sure, sure. So what we did was um, we looked at the school almost like it was... An organism. So we looked at things like the workloads that were being given to the staff. We even went down to calculating how many hours were allocated to each staff member for different types of work. Um, and we sort of wanted to see if there were any patterns that could be discovered in what kind of work was being given to um, female and male staff and whether that could go anyway to explaining what was happening in terms of promotion. Academic workloads are comprised of lots of different things, um, including teaching and administration, as well as research. Um, they would probably be the main kinds of things that academic work sort of um, is taken is comprised of. We looked at workload over three years because we wanted to get a really good representative sample, and we calculated all the different academic staff out working hours. And what we found was um, 
for academic men, um, the workloads ranged between 75 to 220 hours over that three-year period. And when we looked at the academic women, we found that they were working 190 to 260 hours. So that's quite a big difference in the minimum working time. Um, that's more than twice what the um, minimum working time for the sort of um, academic man was doing in the in the school. Right. So, so you'd expect. Um, I mean, with, with results like that, you'd you'd expect women to be ahead of the men, just based yeah. on the raw data. Yeah. So, so yeah, what happened? Exactly. What, what did did you find anything to explain why there was this discrepancy still? Two things, I guess. Yes, it, you'd think that if you worked lots, it meant that you were considered good for promotion. But it really depends on the kind of work that you're doing. Um, there's good work. Uh, that, that is, there's work that's going to be really advantageous to you for promotion, and there's kind of the drudge work, um, work that's just not going to get you promoted at all. And um, unfortunately, that's usually um, divided into research work, which is what gets you promoted, and teaching work, which is rarely of, um, in this case, rarely of any benefit to you. And it turns out that the women were doing a huge proportion of the teaching work. Um, and the teaching work usually takes more time as well. So really what we found was that the women were doing many hours of unrewarding work in terms of their careers. That's really interesting. And so how did this breakdown happen? Is it Was it a self-selecting thing or were women given more teaching positions? There were quite a few different reasons why it occurred. And I guess it's sort of, this goes to the heart, I think, of how um, workplaces can become unequitable um, for women or for any group, really. I don't think that no one set out with the intention of making it an unfair workplace. What it sort of seems like, it's just an accumulation of little solutions to problems that seem to be right at the time, but then just become this huge conglomerate of unfair sort of work practices. So what happened was that um, you had women coming into the workplace about a generation or so before us who um, came into the workplace in mainly teaching positions. So they were accepted as tutors within the School of Physics and became established as teachers. Um, the men, in contrast, usually came in as researchers and both groups became entrenched within those roles. So you're saying that the the old way that women were hired was more often through these teaching positions. How about women today? Do you think there's hope for physicists in the future, women physicists? Um, yes, I think that the... In some ways, yes. The, the women that are being... Um, that are entering academic work now um, are applying at the same kinds of levels as their male counterparts. So they don't have that initial um, problem with in, in terms of starting out. They're not seen primarily as tutors or teachers. Another interesting finding is that um, the types of work that 
women and men were allocated were very different. Um, well, in terms of teaching, there are two different types of physics courses. There are the physics courses that are taught to the students who really don't want to do physics but have to do physics as part of their other course, and that's called a physics service course. Then there are the physics major courses that you teach to the students who actually want to be there, who want to go through, become physicists and get into research. If you teach a physics service course, you don't have contact with students who are going to then turn into potential researchers and research assistants, whereas in the physics major courses, you're getting contact with students who may well become your future research assistants. Obviously, this is an advantage to your research because if you have contact with these students, um, they, may, they may become a part of your team and can help you generate publications and do your, help you do your research. It's a really important part to academic science. Women who made up 21% of the staff ended up teaching 70% of the physics service courses, whereas the men who at that time made up 80% of the staff only taught 30% of the physics service courses. And by contrast, the men taught a huge majority of the physics major courses. That is, women could go for years without actually getting new research assistance. So it seems like the, the gender problems were really insidious and spread throughout the entire faculty then. Yeah, they were. And, um, and the interest, I guess the interesting thing is that nobody ever really thought that it was happening. Yeah, stop to think about it. Well, no. Aileen Wu, thank you very much for your interview. And that's all from us in this edition of Diffusion. If you'd like to contact us, if you have feedback, comments, suggestions, or wild, passionate praise, if you'd like to broadcast a story on Diffusion and hear your own voice communicating science on radio, then send us an email to diffusion at 2ser.com. That's diffusion at 2ser.com. Or subscribe to our podcast on our website, www.diffusionradio.com. Once again, that's www.diffusionradio.com. Contributing to the program were Mark West, Lachlan Watmore, Ian Wolfe, and me. Diffusion was produced in the studios of 2SER in Sydney. Diffusion is broadcast nationally via the Community Radio Network. I'm Victoria Bond. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion. <laughs>